All your base are belong to us. Hello, and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and uh, just as a forewarning, I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm so tired. Um, but I'm going to do my best to talk about practical magic. You'll do all fine. That. You'll do fine. I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and um, I deeply resonated with Sally's little girl, Kylie. For multiple reasons, but not every reason. But I too felt her pain <laughs> and her joy. Yeah, though my mom didn't get as angry. Well, that's good. I didn't get angry at all, really, until we found out it was all stolen money. Yeah, and I'm not going to go into what it was. So now you all have to <laughs> guess and wonder. Secret. Um, so we're, today we're talking about practical magic. We're talking about the 1995 novel written by Alice Hoffman and the 1998 film directed directed by Griffin Dunn. Uh, Griffin Dunn has done many things, but to me, he will always be Jack in an American Werewolf in London. Oh, that's right! So funny. Uh, both the novel and the film follow the Owen sisters, Sally, who's played by Sandra Bullock, and Je- uh, Jillian, played by Nicole Kidman. Perfect casting. Two women in a long line of descendants of witches. In the novel, the family has long been accused of cursing the town. In the film, the Owens themselves are cursed. Thanks to Maria Owens, an ancestor who cast a spell to stop herself from falling in love again after the father of her child abandoned her, which passed on to all of her descendants as uh, the men who love us will die. Kind of a shitty, shitty shitty situation is what I'm looking for. Typical feminist. Absolutely. After the deaths of their parents, Sally and Jillian live with their aunts, Frances, played by Stockard Channing, and Jet, played by Dan Wiest. In the film, their mother died of a broken heart after their father died due to the curse, and in the book, both died in a fire on their second honeymoon. Uh, the sisters grow up without many restrictions, with Sally wanting normalcy and Jillian craving this like sort of wild and free life. Sally ends up marrying a man who dies, but in the film, his death is a result of the curse, whereas in the book, it is not. Sometimes people do die. Um... Sally moves out of the childhood home with the ants with her daughters in the book to live a more normal life and things largely go according to plan until Jillian shows up with the dead body of her boyfriend, Jimmy. Happens. Who she believes she's accidentally poisoned. The plot is very similar in the movie, but slightly different. Um, They bury his body in Sally's yard, but they continue to be haunted by his presence, eventually having to call the ants to help them get rid of him entirely. In the book, both Sally and Jillian fall in love with new men, the detective investigating Jillian's missing boyfriend, and a teacher who works in Sally's town, I wish they allowed her to still be a teacher. Yeah. I liked her as a teacher. Or she wasn't a teacher. She was... She worked... worked, She was like a secretary at the school. I liked her as a secretary. Um... Whereas in the movie, it's only Sally that falls in love. Um, I knew the stories were different, but writing that summary made me really realize how different they are. Because it's hard to be like, this happens in the movie, but this happens in the book. But this happens. Yeah. This happens in both, but it's kind of different. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, there's They're quite different in tone, I would say. The, yeah, the I movie agree. Is, the movie is, I would say, a dark comedy. And it's fast-paced, I think. Yeah. Uh, maybe I just feel that way because the book's not. Yeah, the the book is quite slow-paced and is more of just a romance, I would yeah. say. But not like a. it's not a romance in the way you're thinking. <laughs> it's about love. It's about love. Um, the question that I kind of want to bring going into this episode, because this is a question that I ask a lot, is why does this movie in particular resonate so much with people? 
Um, because you know what? Me too. Yeah. And the thing is, I watch it and I'm like, this is a this is a really charming kind of mediocre movie. <laughs> it's really, really charming. Like, and I, I adore it. It's definitely like a comfort movie for mm-hmm. me, you know? Especially but, the end. But is it really good? I don't know that it is. We're biased. But God, I love it. It's so charming to me. Well, what does good mean? Truly. Um, so I don't have an answer for this question of, of why it resonates so much with people because it's a really individual thing, right? But you can think yeah. of this as our guiding question for this episode. What is it about this movie that makes people love it so much? And, you know, conversely, what makes people hate it? Um, this is a movie that is pretty popular with audiences it has a cult following uh but is unpopular with critics and i unironically love this movie even as i'm aware that it is like kind of mediocre um when you put the book and the movie together i think you have a much stronger story but they but they are quite different um and people tend to like one or the other usually whichever they encountered first interesting uh so despite that why does practical magic resonate with so many people Everybody wants to be Sandra Bullock. It's true. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the history of witchcraft and feminism. You knew it was coming. Yeah, of course. Um, being a witch is an appealing thing. There is roughly one billion articles out there dating back to the dawn of fucking time about why witchcraft, whether that's traditional folk practices or something newer like Wicca or non-secular witchcraft or even the will say less great ideas of the sick of the secret or victim blaming manifestation practices. When I say victim blaming manifestation practices, I do I don't mean everybody who says manifesting. I mean this very specific form that comes from the law of attraction that's like used in business and it's like if you're like heavily privileged people. Yeah, it's like if your life sucks because you have a bad attitude. Uh, I don't fuck with that. Yeah, it's like if someone's depressed and they're like, well, maybe if you just thought about all the good that you have in your life. Yeah, I don't fuck with that. Um, when I say things like when I say things like that, this is the kind of thing I mean. It's it it's it actually is a fascinating history of being in, entwined with business and capitalism. We couldn't go into all of that today because this is not an episode about like. But we could. It could be an episode of its own, but it would be an episode on the secret, and I'm not about that either. Yeah. Um. So there's, like I said, there's a million billion articles about why this kind of thing is appealing to people. And the articles are usually like, why now? And it's like, well, it's kind of always. Um, Rather than recounting all of those various arguments, I'm going to focus in on a few that make sense within the context of practical magic, with the title being a big part of this. Uh, Practical, as in the actual practice or use of something rather than theoretical. And magic, as in the power to make things happen through seemingly supernatural means. Um, one thing I'll point to immediately off the bat is that the movie lacks the practical part of doing magic. Uh, aside from the very end where, where Sally quotes the part of the book, like the last paragraph of the book about like planting rosemary by your garden gate. Such a good quote. Though. It is. I learned next to nothing about how to do magic from this movie. And here's the thing. Like, that's not plenty of stories have magic in them that I can't do. But it is kind of a betrayal of the title to call it practical magic and then have no practical magic in it yeah like in the book there's the flowers like help different things Mm -hmm. within the town like there's herb lore yeah there's folklore there's superstition those are all practical magic and and i think one of the things that the movie doesn't understand about the book is that love itself is the practical magic um 
Which is what binds the whole book together. Exactly. And I, I don't even mean, you know, about not learning how to do magic from this movie. I don't even mean like actionable spells. I mean that magic is not only innate, like the Owens are witches, the townsfolk are not, but that some people can do magic better than others. Sally can do magic better than Jillian for no reason other than that she has a natural gift for it. Mm-hmm. Practical magic, therefore, is something that may be entirely inaccessible, which to me is not very practical. That's just magic. That's just magic, baby. And, <laughs> and the thing about that is the book the book is so the book is practical, right? The book is mm-hmm. about practical magic, magic that is accessible and practicable by everybody. The movie doesn't have that. And I think that's a feature that is actually missing. Yeah. Um, the book, you know, as I said, the book, on the other hand, introduces practical magic frequently. Most chapters have little recitations of herb lore, superstition and ritual for practical purchases purposes like lavender for luck etc that kind of thing is everywhere in the book anybody can plant some lavender and get some luck exactly that said the movie isn't without magic and i think the book gives us some insight into the many ways that magic can work magic is not just love spells right it's not just you know poking the morning dove with a needle which Um, they didn't have enough of in the in the movie i feel like yeah there should have been that was the one thing from the movie i was really missing is like the ants weren't very nice Mm -hmm. and um they were definitely taking advantage of the women and i wanted to see more of that yeah because it also made sense why the women hated them so much exactly it made a good deal more sense (laughs) um you know so the idea of practical magic is not just love spells it's the idea of love itself uh hence fall in love wherever you can being part of one of those little it's mm-hmm. you know plant plant lavender by your garden gate or no sorry plant rosemary by your garden gate plant lavender for luck always throw spilled salt over your left shoulder and fall in love whenever you can there's a reason fall in love with whenever you can is counted alongside rosemary yeah. lavender and salt right like it is it is saying that love is as powerful a magical element Mm -hmm. as those other three things. Um, I can imagine if this book came out today, it would draw some ire for having so much insta love. Um, Characters fall in love very quickly, but that's the point, isn't it? Like love is magical. The experience of being in love is a kind of magic. It, it, I feel like that part just adds to the lore of the magic that they've created within the book. Yeah. Like in the in the movie, it's a little bit harder to understand, but I think the book, one of the things it does is like, of like, yeah, they fall in love. Like that's the like, it feels like that's the only way they can fall in love. Mm-hmm. That's the only way. The magic, the magic of falling in love within the book is a it's a spell, not that somebody casts, but it's like a spell they cast on one another. Yeah. They're experiencing this magic together. Mm-hmm. I think that's lovely. I know a lot of people don't like insta love as a trope like they'll like knock you know imaginary points off of a book for that i don't give a fuck this is how i feel about love triangles too i'm like it's fine like i don't have an opinion it can be done badly but anything can be done badly you know i just think of all books this makes the most sense in this yeah no truly (laughs) like it really i think without it without that instant love i feel like you wouldn't understand the importance and the mad like how magical love is as well as I did at least for me yeah and I think part of it too is like how quickly it happens gets you caught up in it too it gets your heart kind of racing Mm -hmm. you know the way that love does Mm -hmm. um and I think that I think it's very purposefully deployed you know it might be insta love but it's not it's not just love of convenience right yeah there's a purpose a narrative purpose to it um, so, you know, the experience of being in love in this, ser- in this book is, is a kind of magic itself. 
Why? <laughs> well, love isn't literally supernatural. Um, if we want to get very literal about it, there are chemicals involved that, you know, your body makes when you see the person that you love. Um, but it does seem to exert a force on us that we can't quite understand. You can try to think about why you love somebody and maybe you can identify some reasons. But like, why is the reason as a bisexual person, for example, why do I love my husband in a romantic way? Mm -hmm. And I love Mary as my friend, but I don't love Mary romantically. It is very interesting. Or like the things you love about Josh can be exist in other people. Yeah. And I don't love those. People. Yeah. So it is, it does feel like when you think like, uh, I know there's a lot of people who advocate for the fact that we shouldn't be monogamous. Mm -hmm. And I think there's probably some truth to that, at least for some people. Sure. Um, Cause it is kind of like, it is a little weird that we fall in love with one person and one true love and the idea of that. Or, I mean, people fall in love with multiple people often. Yeah. But, like, it does seem a little supernatural. Mm -hmm. Like, that does seem like if I were to believe in anything supernatural, for me, that would probably be the biggest one. Because, like, I don't know. It just seems kind of weird. And it's, we can't we can't explain love perfectly. Mm -mm. Like even if we understand the chemical reactions, even if we understand like the scientific reason that we fall in love, the feeling of love feels a little magical, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't have to be just romantic love either. This can be familial love. Mm -hmm. This can be friendly love. This can be any kind like of like when love. you just click with someone. Yeah. Or why you get do a I dog. love? Why do I love my pet so fucking much? Like <laughs> I don't know. They sure test you though. Yeah, they test me at every turn, but. <laughs> but I still love them so much and I can't explain why like I don't know there's no there's no perfect explanation and so it feels like a kind of magic um I think understanding love in the context of practical magic capital P capital M uh understanding love as a type of magic can lead us to something more important the idea of togetherness of being with others in any context as a foundation of love and as end of love as a form of magic mm -hmm. um this is a quote from Screaming, Flying, and Laughing, Magical Feminisms, Witches, in Contemporary Film, Television, and Novels by Kim Wells, uh, who writes, as the epigraph above says, I didn't include that, uh, <laughs> there are me memories of women's work that tell stories of power and history that, before feminism, may not have been properly appreciated or even recorded. An entire lineage of women's lives lies buried in their kitchens and crafts and the products of their hands. So domestic work, uh, cooking, cleaning, even healing, uh, medicine, that kind of thing, has often been historically, uh, quote unquote, women's work. And as we'll discuss in a bit, women were also agricultural workers in the Middle Ages and held jobs as artisans, nuns, and so on. Like they weren't, in the Middle Ages, in the time preceding and during the witch trials, um, the original ones in England, women were not just homemakers. They did lots of other things. Um, They're an important part of keeping the community together. Absolutely. Um, but the domestic sphere also largely belonged to women. So they might hold, you know, they might work in agriculture, but they also took care of the home. <sighs> in, Still. <laughs> in patriarchal societies where men are considered more important than women, that means that, quote unquote, women's work was often devalued and considered unimportant. Hence this idea of domestic work, which included cooking and cleaning, but also healing and things that we might associate with magic today being forgotten. Because it was women's work, it wasn't as important to historians or to people making art about that time. Mm -hmm. It was also commonplace, right? These were things that were every day. 
Uh, meaning that it was probably unremarkable to the people who were making you know, art or historical mm-hmm. records or whatever. It didn't seem worth mentioning the kinds of things that women did. Both, again, for the reason of patriarchy and for the reason of it's just what they do. It's necessary to the functioning of society. Why even mention it? It's always going to be this way. So I want to talk, well, first I'm going to quote, but I want to talk about this video from Philosophy Tube, um, Witchcraft, Gender, and Marxism. Um, This is like, I feel like the eight, I've watched this video probably three or four times. (laughs) I find it absolutely fascinating. Um, If you're not into YouTube, this is a very YouTube video essay, so maybe you (laughs) won't like it, but it is, I think it's a super fascinating video about the history of witchcraft um, and its ties the witch burning ties to capitalism based on the work of uh, philosopher Sylvia Federici. Um, So this is a quote from the video. Uh, Magic isn't meant to explain things like a lot of spiritual practices. It can be about community and solidarity, but it's also the refusal of an explanation. Put the right ingredients together and you can make someone fall in love, confound your enemies, turn invisible, fly. How exactly does it work? Mm, You're asking the wrong question. It's magic. So using, again, using the work of philosopher Silvia Federici, Abigail Thorne draws a line from the practice of magic, which she argues suggests getting something for nothing without work. Um, So she draws a line from the practice of magic to capitalism and the witch burnings as a method of bringing women who were the majority of magic practitioners to heal. That's H-E-E-L, not H-E-A-L, two different uh homophones uh <laughs> following the black plague the workforce was decimated like it was like one in three people died in the black plague so there was a huge number of regular workers who had died um but work of course still needed to go on right so fewer workers actually gave the workers more power because they were in high demand um and many movements for better working conditions were actually led by women in this time Rather than addressing the concerns of working people, those in power took a different different tactic. Squash the rabble rousers. Wow, this sounds very relevant. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this sounds exactly like what's happening right now. Absolutely. COVID took out a bunch of people. These people are people aren't taking lower paying jobs and instead of paying people more, we're demonizing them. Yeah. Uh, Under capitalism, the role of cis women was to produce children, which could then become part of the labor force. With the combined forces of capitalism, patriarchy, and Christianity, it was... The Holy Trinity. Exactly. It wasn't hard to sell the idea that anything that women did outside of the necessary domestic sphere, cooking, cleaning, bearing children, should be punished, right? The witch hunts restricted women's ability to do anything other than produce children as the arts and work that they practiced, which included midwifery, healing and so on, as well as magic. um, It ensured that those things were criminalized and women who practiced them were shamed, shunned, discouraged and or killed. I think that this 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 lore, it's not really lore, but this history needs to be like more like spread more because there is this growing group of mostly women cis women who are like i want to go back to the times when men worked and i stayed at home mm-hmm. like like not like oh man wouldn't that be great like literally they want to go back Trad to that. wives yes and they don't understand that it wasn't just that yeah like it was much 
more than that. Also, I saw one person be like, and they were all drugged up. They drugged <laughs> themselves up. I did see somebody make a valid argument of, I want to go back to the times when um, they sent hysterical women to places by the sea and let them just cool down for a little bit. I'd be cool with <laughs> well, that. Well, that was wealthy women. That's true. That was wealthy The other women. ones were put into sanitariums and treated terribly. Okay, we all should be wealthy. <laughs> but I think that this, this idea of like, I want to go back to the good times when really like, you think you, you you really, really, really have no rights. Also, the good times for whom? Yeah, exactly. I said that to someone one time, a coworker a while ago, because she's like, that whole thing. And I was like, why would you want to go back to a time when like racism was pretty, like pretty bad? I mean, it's always been bad, but like, it's very blatant. When we were actively denying. Act- yeah. Rights. And she looks at me, she goes, there's always going to be discrimination. Oh. I was like, I, I literally, I was like, are you... Uh, what and i just turned around and left she also thought that you couldn't um rape somebody who is married oh god yeah i had she had a lot of trauma that she still needed to get through apparently so during this during this time in this like transition between the time when women held a lot of societal power um in terms of like midwifery and healing and that kind of thing and um kind of bringing workers to heal under capitalism um that was when they, you know, kind of pushed this idea of practicing outside of giving birth, caring for the home and caring for the children was something to be shamed, shunned, discouraged and or killed for. Uh, to be clear, this isn't like a grand conspiracy on the part of some kind of archetypal figure of capitalism. Uh, it was a consequence of the new economic system. So we're shifting to this new economic system. Oh, we need women in the home to create children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, there's this handy Bible phrase, like maybe we can make use of that. It's not like everybody sat like a bunch of landowners sat down in a room. And they're like, how can we get women put women in their place? It was a consequence of the economic system. Kind of feels like now where women are being forced to have children. Yeah. Mostly. I mean, they want to control women, but also like they're going to need a workforce. Exactly. Because not, like the younger generation isn't having children. Right. Um, Many of the claims against witches, notably, were focused on reproduction, sacrificing children, having sex with the devil, causing impotence, etc. Those are all sexual claims. I mean, just watch The Witch. Yeah. Magic was no longer a neutral or positive thing for society. It was a way that women undermined the power structure, including the power structures within a smaller community, and therefore magic needed to be done away with. Um, Thorne also points to these same tactics being used against black people who were accused of sexual crimes against white women and lynched as a means of controlling a group seen as a free source of labor, right? Very similar ideas. Um, Obviously, women are no longer restricted to working in the domestic sphere. From the 1930s to now, but especially through the 1970s, women began entering the workforce until the majority of married couples had both people working. But for the majority of people, there was still domestic work. You still had to cook. You still had to clean. You still had to do child care. Um, And in keeping with tradition, that was still largely the domain of women. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s to the 1980s, when much of this was taking place, we see the rise of what's called second wave feminism. The first wave of feminism was largely focused on voting rights and similar issues and took place like in the 1800s through the securing of the right for white women to vote in the U.S. Suffragettes. Yeah. Um, Vote white ones only. Exactly. (laughs) 
Uh, second wave feminism was a lot broader and focused on many issues, including reproductive rights, sexuality, and most relevant to our discussion, workplace, ri- workplace rights and domesticity. So one of the most prominent issues at the intersection of women in the workforce and domesticity was the idea of double duty or the second shift. Uh, referring to the unpaid labor of housekeeping and childcare, typically associated with women, even after women join the workforce. Um, raising awareness of the unequal share of domestic labor performed by women was a big part of this conversation. And it still is. Even today, women still perform the majority of housework, such as co- cleaning, cooking, and taking care of children, even when they work more or earn more money than their male partners. Domestic, The majority of domestic work still falls to women. Um, I watched this one video of this guy and he was debating another guy and the guy said, uh, essentially was saying it's the role of the woman to do these mm. things. And he's like, why wouldn't you think like, why, why would you help your wife? Essentially? He goes, mm-hmm. cause she's tired. He goes, why is she tired? Well, she's working. And he goes, what do you mean? <laughs> and like, he couldn't, he's like, why? Like, even if they're working, like, they're like, you should still be doing this. And he couldn't wrap his mind around the fact that women work and get tired as well. Yeah. And then he started freaking out. And he's like, there are there are roles. Do you agree with that? And the guy's like, what do you mean roles? It was very Dinner funny. roles. <laughs> Dinner roles. Like he knew what the guy meant. Yeah. But he was just being like, explain it to me. Mm-hmm. Like, try to tell me this is what women are supposed to do. Because I know you don't want to, but that's what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, the just the idea that women can be tired yeah. <laughs> was wild to this man. Yeah. Um, because of its association with women, domestic work is often devalued, hence some of the reluctance of men to take it on. It doesn't seem important, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even that they don't want to live in a clean house. It's that it doesn't seem important to them. It seems natural that the, uh, that the female partner should do it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a complex issue with a lot of factors, but the point I'm getting at here is that second wave feminism was concerned with, among other things, raising awareness of the toll the second shift takes on women. Uh, during the 1980s in particular, there was also something of a backlash on women who weren't entering the workforce because they chose to be stay-at-home mothers. Or, in another term, they had the luxury of choosing mm-hmm. to be stay-at-home mothers because the fact of the matter is... As women entered the workforce, instead of like, you know, married couples suddenly having oodles and oodles of money, the cost of goods went way up, uh, especially under President Reagan. Just uh, the, the source of so many bad things. Yeah, and and the rise of trickle down economics, Blech. and then all of a sudden you had you had to have a partner, and they had to be working, and you could no longer survive as a stay at home parent unless you're uh, unless the part of the the partner who has like a regular job is making tons and tons of money. And now those people are like, why can't we go back to the time when we didn't Mm -hmm. have to do that? And I'm like, because of you. (laughs) Um, Literally because of you. Because listen, my husband would love nothing more than to like be a stay at home person. Right. He would love nothing more. He's like, you are so, he's like, you're the one that went to college. (laughs) Why aren't you making enough money to support? I'm like, I don't know, but you still have to work. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to find evidence of, of this idea of this like backlash toward people who could or wanted to stay at home. Um, but it was but it was very prominent in media. Mm-hmm. Uh, women with shoulder pads being nasty toward the sweet and good stay at home mothers, for example, which served to demonize feminism and promote the idea that feminists were man haters and nasty people. There's a Oprah episode all about this. Oh, really? Yeah, it's all about this. And it definitely like the things that the women are saying definitely feels contrived because like really like why would you? <laughs> 
the things they're saying, like, how could you think that? I'm sure some women can sure. feel this way, but it definitely feels like it was made for TV. Yeah. Um, but I do see a lot of men um, online uh, with the, like, do you expect the man to work all day and then come home and, like, help take care of their kid and baby? And the moms are usually like, I also am working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's still a job. So, yeah, I do expect them to come home and help. Well, I mean, you can see this in the way that, like, it's common for men to say that they are babysitting. Yes. It, they, you don't babysit your own child. Yeah. That's your, that's your kid, honey. <laughs> I'm on babysitting duty. Yeah. No, you are parenting. You are a parent. You're literally parenting. Right. Um, and it's it's not even, this isn't an individual man issue. Which I think is how people want to think about it. Mm-mm, this is yeah. a patriarchy issue. This is an idea. This is an, an issue with how we raise men to think about children and how we raise, um, how we think about women's duties. Um, so, uh, so you have a lot of these complex issues around work, around domesticity and that kind of thing. Um, bleeding into the time in which Practical Magic was written. It came out in 1995 and made into a movie, which was three years later in 1998. You have the legacy of the devaluing of domestic work. You have popular media that made working women into monsters. And you even have stuff like the Satanic Panic, Mm -hmm. which was probably less relevant because Practical Magic is by and for adults and not about the corruption of children. Um, But also probably not irrelevant, Mm -hmm. right? Um, there were also a number of people practicing Wicca, a specific a specific neo-pagan religion that uses witchcraft throughout the 20th century with a rise in feminist specific feminist oriented Wicca practices in the 1970s, um, which is going to bring us right back to practical magic. I, I We would get back there eventually. <laughs> I know I took you through a journey through the Middle Ages. But when are you, when have we not? Waves of when is Missy not giving you the whole history? Yeah. Um, so this is a quote from Crafting the Witch, Gendering Magic in Medieval and Modern Early Modern England by Heidi Brewer, who writes, uh, the film represents the magic as domestic, involving potions brewed in the rambling kitchen, herbs grown in a sunny breakfast nook, and women with brooms and one mop, and the exorcism ritual itself take place in the kitchen. These witches are like the medieval good witches, and their participation together allows them to destroy the masculine source of their problems, just as the the thousand ladies saved Fennis from her victimization at the hands of the surgeons. That's a reference to something we're not covering (laughs) for this episode. Uh, Though we no longer suffer from oppressive laws denying our rights, and our situation compared to that of medieval women so far improved as to prevent comparison... Uh, women and men in the U.S. still respond to narratives such as that in Practical Magic, which provides strategies for defending against, avoiding, or otherwise mitigating the aggressive violence of men. That we still need such strategies points to the insidious pervasiveness of patriarchal tolerance and thus promotion of male violence against women. So right off the bat here, this quote helps us identify a couple of things that relate directly to the history of feminism, the valuing of the domestic sphere and violence against women. Two important factors in the history of feminism, the history of witchcraft, and specifically practical magic. Mm-hmm. Um, following some of the backlash, which may have largely been been fictional, at least in the terms of like it appeared in movies, um, following some of the backlash to domestic labor in the 1980s, practical magic emphasizes domestic labor as not only important and necessary, but magical. Mm-hmm. Cooking is magical. Gardening, magical. Even childcare, magical. All it's of true, these things. Though. 
all of these things in the movie and in the book are sources of magic as much as, you know, any magical, innate magical ability that the sisters or the aunts or I'm the children have. I'm just saying, like, baking a cake, like, the fact that you put some wet shit in the oven and then suddenly it's a <laughs> fucking cake, that's pretty magic. Yeah, I mean, it's science, but it's also, like, you can but also what, look at it as magic. Yeah, I totally see science as magic. Um, Because it's science that, you know, lavender will make things smell good, which may give you luck. Yeah. That's how I'm going to put that there. Um, the kitchen and the garden are now sources of power. Again, after capitalism, the witch trials and the devaluing of domestic art by patriarchy and pop culture. That's kind of what practical magic does is it situates those places as sites of magic again. But it goes a step further. These same things are sources of power against the threat of abusive men. In the book, it's proximity to other women and the coming together of the family that create the magic necessary to banish Jimmy forever. In the film, it's even more explicit. The community, who largely hated the Owens unless they needed a love spell performed, come together and banish him with what we can read as the literal tools of women's oppression. They literally do it by cooking up a spell together in the kitchen. They do it by sweeping this man out of the home with their brooms. Like, literally. Or a vacuum. Or a vacuum. (laughs) They're literally using things we can view as the tool of oppressing women to... Uh, to reject violent masculinity. Um, there's power in what's been forced upon us is what the exorcism scene seems to be saying. Mm-hmm. And again, it's notable that they're essentially taking up arms against a man who abuses women, but who is also grossly sexual about them. Like mm-hmm. when he says, I'm very into sisters <laughs> right now. Um, and he is literally inhabiting a woman's body. It's a total violation of autonomy, something secondhand feminism was very concerned with. And now all we are again. Yeah, of course. Everything comes back around. Um, this is another quote here from Screaming, Flying, and Laughing, Magical Feminisms, Witches in Contemporary Film, Television, and Novels by Kim Wells. Um, in other words, the answer the town spinster witches needed and reviled, perhaps blamed and scapegoated so strongly because they are needed so fiercely. Because they ha- have power over people's love lives, they know secrets and could be hated. Indeed, the start of both novel and film lead us to expect this dislike and hatred to continue along stereotypical lines of the hated and punished outsider witch. But Hoffman's narrative rewrites these expectations and shows us instead the new generation of young wi- witches using domestic power to control their own lives, heal their communities, and live a quote-unquote normal life of their own not as spinster outsiders but as real women with specialized knowledge so things that were once taboo including feminism can become mainstream is kind of what's being suggested here i think the movie is maybe less clear about why the townspeople hate the owen sisters mm-hmm. so much in the book there's a lot of romantic jealousy happening it's so clear <laughs> um but in the movie they seem to hate them because they're witches even though the magic they do is way less obvious except for the ants who only do it if the townsfolk come to them first but in the movie like most of the magic that they do is just like stirring the coffee yeah, you know, like it's like nothing. It's just like just feels like oh, you're a witch. Blech. Yeah, it's not like in the book where it's like truly every little thing she does is magic. Yeah, and like you slept with all these people, and you're and you're making you're stealing other people's husbands by making <laughs> making them in love with somebody right. else. Yeah, and then you ruin her life. That was such a great. That was such a great. Yeah, the girl that worked at the um place. Yeah, I felt so bad for her, but she did it to herself. <laughs> 
One of the things I was ready to be critical about with the movie was that without Sally really making any change in her behavior whatsoever, all the women in town are willing to come over and participate in witchcraft themselves when she asks. But when I watched it, I saw that Sarah, I think it was Sarah, starts spreading the message by talking not about witchcraft, but by talking about how Jimmy is abusive, meaning that 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 is the basis of identification for them. They don't give a shit that Sally's a witch anymore. They care that Sally's sister is being abused. Yeah. Um, they get over their hangups about Sally because they all understand the importance of getting rid of this awful man. I think it's worth mentioning that they come together and use domestic tools to achieve that. Mm-hmm. They are willing to set aside the differences because they all understand what it is to be threatened by a man. Um, Most women have had that at yeah. least a threat yeah. from a man. I also like that this quote specifically discusses that the witches of the that the witches of the present in the novel don't have to live the way their aunts do. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly acceptable and still magical to let witchcraft be only a part of the person that you are. Mm-hmm. I do wish we knew a bit more about Sally's community's response to her being a witch rather than her largely hiding it in the book. Um, because I do think the shame Sally feels over that is unwarranted and it would have been a nice character like nice character growth to have her you know, stop hiding it. Um, but at the same time, the book is kind of not about that in the way that the movie is about yeah. that. Um, what is the book about? Love. <laughs> um, True. Uh, this is another quote from Screaming, Flying, and Laughing by Kim Wells. The repeated symbolism of domesticity as power stresses the truth that the mundanity of feminine skills are important, not necessarily oppressive. The symbolism then replaces male-centered values that place anything quote-unquote womanly as trivial with with values that see those same things as potentially part of real influence. But both texts also show that power for women is not only about good positive things, trapping women in an essentialist argument that feminine values are more more moral and pure, but can be just as life-changing when the signs are of bad things. In this way, both texts acknowledge the nature of power as shifting and intricately complex. It does this through a series of supernaturally charged household omens that might be dismissed as old wives' tales that come true within the course of the narrative and therefore are strongly intuitive foreshadowing. Things like Broomfell companies coming, blood mm-hmm. on the moon, ring around the moon, etc. Um, in this way, I think practical magic is a response to second wave feminism. The domestic can be a source of power, not just a source of oppression. Mm-hmm. The women in this story challenge the idea that domestic work has no value or is inherently disempowering. For them, it's a necessity, as it is for all of us, but also a tool that can be wielded for a greater purpose. I don't love that witchcraft in the movie remains a thing thing inaccessible to mo- most people because if we're making the point that domestic care and craft are sources of power it doesn't seem right that that is only true for some people yeah i didn't think about this but it's such a good point um the movie has that scene where the women all discuss the sort of witchy things that have happened to them <laughs> that includes the line there's a little witch in all of us which is like fine i guess um i appreciate the that the book's idea of witchcraft is less less magically stirring your coffee with your powers and more haha <laughs> practical <laughs> Um, anyone can plant rose by rosemary by their garden gate, assuming they have a garden gate. Um, so anybody has access to that power. Anybody can throw spilled salt over their left shoulder. You know, like these are things that we all have access to. This is magic that is accessible to everybody. Whereas in the movie, a lot of it's kind of, I no matter how hard I I try, I cannot stir my coffee without touching it. I cannot jump off a roof and not die. I cannot jump off a roof and fly. I like, I just cannot. Um, as the quote says, I don't think the story goes so far as to say all women belong in the kitchen as a source of power, uh, or Sally wouldn't run her own business, right? 
uh, that would be a different problem. Instead, it reconfigures the kitchen as a space of potential power, with potential being a key word. It's not the only one. It's not the most important one. It's just one, mm-hmm. right? We'll return to this a bit later because I think that while it's refuting one aspect of second wave feminism, it's also leaning hard into another, that the domestic sphere is not not the only space for women to gain power, but that there are bad ways to gain power. Mm -hmm. And those places are acting like a man, essentially. Um, This is a quote from The Woman Sawed in Half, Death, Duality, and the Female Figure of Postmodern Psychodrama by Caitlin Hanger. Um. In this this story, Sally is not the dark-haired sexual figure associated with seduction and duplicity, but her boyfriend is. Just as an aside, I I think she got confused. The author got confused here because Jimmy is not Sally's boyfriend. I'm not not sure whether she meant Jillian is not the dark-haired sexual figure. I think maybe the dark hair is what's connecting it. Yeah, something is factually incorrect about this quote, but the the point of it is correct. Um, Jimmy, played by Goran... I do not know how to say his name. Jimmy is a sort of cowboy Dracula hailing from Bulgaria via Transylvania, where he once lived. When he is made undead later in the film, Sally will call him something, quote, dark and unnatural, unquote. And Jillian will then become doubled with him as he possesses her body and motivates her to seductively kiss Sally in a surprising parody of lesbian pleasure. This postmodern remix of old stereotypes seems to rewrite a modern tradition of the femme fatale, perhaps revealing ways in which our attitudes regarding gender demarcations have shifted in recent decades while still retaining traces of the old dichotomies. Moments like this appear frequently in postmodern Hollywood cinema and reflect what Raymond Williams has written about has written about regarding residual ideologies. According to Williams, one of the early cultural studies theorists, residual and emergent communities exist side by side in the same historical moment with a single political space, within a single political space. While a new politic emerges, traces of the old will simultaneously remain in existence. Many post-feminist critics today would probably agree that a similar transitioning or presencing of liminality in modern versus postmodern gender paradigms is occurring today within Western media texts. So we'll talk more about this later, but since this quote brought it up, I do want to introduce the idea of post-feminism. Um, I imagine we've talked about this before. I can't remember when, but it seems like something we would have talked about. Uh, in the 1980s, there was a growing backlash and pushback. Two different things. Backlash is kind of like a an attack, whereas pushback is more of like a questioning. Um, so there was a growing bash- backlash and pushback to feminism, and the word post-feminism arose to describe that, that phenomenon. However, the word post-feminism can mean a multitude of things that include feminism that is critical of previous ways of waves of feminism. It can mean uh, the belief that the abolition of gender rules is the ultimate end goal of feminism, and it can mean the belief that feminism is no longer necessary. Um, here, I believe the author uses post-feminist to mean the belief that the abolition of gender is the end goal, which tracks with what she's saying about Jillian's body as a site of liminality when possessed by Jimmy. We'll talk more about the other types of post-feminism later on. What does liminality mean? Liminality. So <laughs> you've you've unknowingly stepped into discourse. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's okay. We don't need to talk about liminal space discourse. Um, liminality is the idea of being between two things. Mm. Uh, a liminal space is one that you do not inhabit you inhabit you may inhabit it but only as on the way somewhere else so like an airport is okay. a liminal space maybe even a parking lot is a liminal space um again Isn't everything a liminal space? no you live in a house right a house is not a liminal space mm. um an airport 
nobody just hangs out at the airport. I see. I right. See. You, it's it's not a place that you inhabit. It's, it's a, a place that is uh, you're trying to get out of it. Essentially, this is a place of becoming. Sort of, yeah. Uh, the idea, and like the we've talked about heterotopias, right? A, mm-hmm. Another place. Um, a heterotopia is kind of similar, but a heterotopia is a place where you put others, the other, whereas a liminal space is somewhere we might all inhabit at some point, but we don't. You, the goal is essentially to leave it, right? Mm-hmm. Like an mm-hmm. airport. You it don't just sense. go to the airport for fun. <laughs> you go to the airport and you're like, oh, God, get me out of here. It's true. Um, that's a liminal space. Especially when you're like missing get there five hours before. Yeah, exactly. I did that last time. It was pretty terrible. I Listen. I was so afraid, though. Once I'm through TSA, I'm like, okay, now I can relax. Yeah, that's I good. do the same thing. Actually, sometimes, depending, I'm like, I got to get off the plane on my to my destination. Yeah. And then I'm like, I got to get... Th- yeah, I don't know. Travel's weird. <laughs> So so what this quote is is suggesting is that Jillian's body is a site of liminality when possessed by Jimmy, okay. meaning it is not one thing or the other. It is a space in between. It is a space that isn't fully inhabited. Um, anyway, the gist of this quote uh, is that the movie strays from the typical portrayal of two women, one dark haired, one light haired as two different types of women. Uh, typically, the dark haired one is the sexualized lying one. Um, the the author hanger is talking about like a tradition of sisters in movies and how um, usually there will be one with dark hair and one with light hair and the dark haired one's like the bad one and the light haired one's the good one. Um, so typically, again, the dark haired one is the sexualized one who lies. In this case, Jillian is the sexualized figure, but the actual transgressor cr- transgressor is Jimmy, who is dark haired over overtly sexual and duplicitous and not only that but he literally inhabits jillian's body at multiple times throughout the movie making him even more of a transgressor god just awful um hanger further argues that the shift represents changing attitudes about the roles of women in society or the roles like gender roles in 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 all um throughout this film we see a variety of women and only a handful of men michael jimmy and gary are really the only men named who are on screen for more than a minute um and these women those women have their own goals like all of the women portrayed um have their own goals and personalities largely distinct from one another that don't revolve around men uh the women also occupy a number of spaces spaces sally is the domestic mothering type but also a business owner jillian is this wild free spirit but she's also there for her sister when she needs her to be the ants dress traditionally but behave modernly Mm -hmm. right um, the quote also suggests that there's an interesting subversion with regard to Jimmy, who occupies a space similar to the traditional femme fatale. He looks how you would expect a femme fatale to look. He has long, dark hair. I thought this was so interesting. He's like modernly sexy. Um, and he talks a really specific way. Yeah. And he has this very, um, he's very tempting, right? Like we know from the movie that he's he sucks, right? But like yeah. the, the way that he initially engages with Jillian is like almost tender. And it's in, in, you know, it's still very sexual, but it's almost tender. Um, And not only that, but he tempts Jillian toward darkness in a variety of ways, which suggests a change in attitude about gender markers from the past. Uh, This shift is one of many potential things people may find interesting about practical magic in comparison to other rom-coms. I use the term rom-com loosely. (laughs) um, Other dramas or other fantasy films of this period. Um, This is another quote from Screaming, Flying and Laughing by Kim Wells, who writes... We see Jimmy as corrupting the magic feminine space of the garden, but being thwarted by Sally's magic. Thus, the new generation of witches, guided by domestic intuition, rejects the forces of negative violence and the stereotype of women ganging up on 
on each other that Jimmy attempts to foster. The scene featuring Midnight Margaritas begins in a decidedly witchy moment when the ants blend tequila and lime chanting over the blender and Arasat's cauldron, chanting alternating rhyme spell-like. The tequila that makes up the margaritas, which we find was left by ghost Jimmy, leads to a confrontation which causes the women to fight and cackle like shrill witch shrews. (laughs) In this scene in the film, we see graphically brought to life the idea that powerful women will not get along as we see the women rip into each other with playful insults that grow more hurtful. I actually never noticed this until reading this essay, but it's true. Mm -hmm. The women don't behave rudely to each other until Jimmy's tequila enters the picture. Not only do they start insulting one another, they do it with gender-based insults. Jillian says Sally is worried about becoming a frigid old hag, which she compares to the ants. Frances says Jillian has her own magic, and we all know what it is. And when's it a crime to be a slut in this house? And Sally replies, when is being a a slut a crime in this family? And Frances basically basically calls Sally frigid again before they launch into insults like goody two shoes and eventually witch. Notably, every time one of them makes a personal attack, they look confused afterward as if they cannot believe what has just come out of their mouth. It is uncharacteristic of them to insult one another in this way. The point about the shrill laughter is really interesting too. They don't act or sound like this at any other point in the (laughs) film. Um, but they are fully playing into the worst stereotypes about women here. They're catfighting, they're shrilly laughing, and so on. They're drinking. Yeah. And when it's revealed that they've all been drinking, Jimmy's Jimmy's ghost tequila, like, that's... Someone needs to open that up. Mm-hmm. Jimmy's ghost tequila. <laughs> uh, quite literally, it is a man turning them into horrible representations of themselves. It's the presence of men that demonizes women, not the women themselves. And it's totally like it's 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 ruining this moment of joy between them. Yeah, and it's so sad. When yeah, it's like it it feels like a betrayal because I noticed it this last time around watching it. I was like, it feels like such a betrayal, and it, it of like. Was any of that real? Mm-hmm. Just like the love spells. Like, right. is it real? And I think that the joyousness was real. Yeah. Um. But, but oh, man, it sucked. Yeah. Um. You may already be beginning to see some issues with this in terms of, like, how the the presence of a man causing women to act poorly. Um. But we're in the why do people like this phase? Mm-hmm. So put a pin in that. Um, this is a quote from Glamorous Witchcraft, Gender and Magic in Teen Film and Television by Rachel Mosley, who writes, Equally, the powerful female magic circle is present in the configuration of space and in the camera work, as it is in, om- in almost all of these texts, albeit reconfigured. The unconventional wild female space of feminist witchcraft has been transformed. It has become a powerful, girly, sexualized space, a post-feminist space. In Practical Magic, the grown-up Owen sisters and their aunts make midnight margaritas together. Their familiar rite is a riotous time time where they drink and talk about sex dancing around the table as a camera circles wildly around and above them inscribing the magic circle so here we have a very different read on the midnight margarita scene it opens with witchcraft and and is as mosley writes a powerful girly sexualized space a post-feminist space where they drink and talk about sex and i don't think this reading is invalid as much as i agree with the previous quote that what's interesting about the midnight margarita scene is that the women turn on each other under the influence pun fully intended of a man (laughs) I also think that doesn't erase the sort of riotous joy of the scene either. 
Uh, as Mosley implies here, it's sort of a modern take on the idea of crazed, of a crazed witch's Sabbath. They're not behaving in a way that's frowned upon or even criminalized for women. They're doing magic. They're gossiping. They're being frank about sex. Like all of these things are kind of themselves a little bit taboo and they're taking joy in doing them. It kind of feels like the like, OK, if we go back to like the domestic taking care of the things in the house, whereas it was like a man saying you have to be there and then a woman feeling like, no, I feel empowered by this. Yeah. Uh, I think it's possible for both of these readings to be true because the fact of the matter is that women aren't perfect. Many of us are petty. We gossip. We tear other women down. But we also experience moments of camaraderie. Like nobody's ever 100% one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, Life under patriarchy doesn't just look one way. Now, if you want to ask whether the film intended both readings, that is a question Mm -hmm. I can't answer. I am not sure. Uh, But I think that there is evidence for both. There's evidence for this as a joyful scene and there's evidence for this as a horrific scene. And I think that there's a tonal shift Mm -hmm. in it, right? The the more they drink, the worse they get Mm -hmm. in terms of how they're lashing out at one another. Um, This is a quote from guest writer Wednesday, Guilty Pleasures, Practical Magic, uh, which is by Didion who writes, uh, but there's one other reading that works even better for me, and I lift this directly from the great documentary, The Celluloid Closet. The insight goes something like this. I watch and appreciate practical magic, not for what it is, but for all that I read into it, all that speaks to me beyond the surface. I don't see Midnight Margaritas as a throwaway scene or as an instrument for forcing Sally and Jilly to deal with their mistakes. I read into it a world of intense female closeness that I rarely get to see on screen. What gives me pleasure in this film is what I am what I imagine in between the lines of its essential mediocrity. Um, I think this is true for a lot of media that mm-hmm. I personally enjoy, but that doesn't really hold up to critical scrutiny, right? I also think that Midnight Margaritas is definitely not a throw. Oh, scene. definitely not. Um, I think all criticisms aside, this absolutely is a movie about female closeness, right? For sure. Um, It's also a romance film that is very heteronormative and very, very white. Um, (laughs) Painfully. Painfully white. But you know, so is Whoopi Island. It's true. Uh, but But I think when you pay attention to the closeness between women in this movie, you can see women who are challenging one another to love. Mm-hmm. Yes, it ends in heteronormative relationships with no real opportunity for a queer reading. This is the straightest possible movie it's so straight (laughs) um but the pushing toward relationships is in my opinion largely about pushing one another to experience life to its fullest rather than about romance as the end goal itself yeah because i mean they they create the spell so she can fall in love and find joy i don't think in the movie especially they don't think she's gonna fall in love yeah they, they they're like you don't have to be afraid of this. And yeah. then in doing so, they make it worse. It was a stupid idea. Yeah. But they're like, you can just have some good sex. Yeah, exactly. Sally has denied herself uh, something because she is afraid of the consequences. And both her aunts and eventually her kids and Jillian push her toward that thing that she's so scared of. Is it morally right? No, no. not really. Uh, but it's a movie. People are allowed to do things that are morally dubious because people do things like that in real life, too. You know, yeah. like. Yes, it is absolutely morally wrong for them to cast that spell on Michael and Sally. Like, that is bad. But also, it's a movie. People do bad things. Um, Anyway, my point is that I agree that this is a story about closeness between women. And the fact that the women don't always act perfectly toward one another doesn't diminish that to me. Absolutely not. It would feel, with how, it would feel so cheesy if it did. Yeah. It would just feel so unrealistic in a world in which things already are unrealistic. Right. That's a bridge too far. That's too 
far. <laughs> like likewise, while the story is painfully straight and the movie is at the movie at least is painfully white, I think that's not actually a terrible thing for it to use romantic relationships as the capstone for the story. It's boring, yes. But I think the book in particular does a good job of weighting those romantic relationships like it weights the non-romantic relationships. Yeah. The book in particular is about all forms of love and love is a kind of magic. Therefore, romantic love is just one part of the equation. Well, and I think particularly with Jillian and getting what I think his name was Ben. Yeah. Um, ben, it wasn't just about like loving Ben. It's Ben showed Jillian that she's worth loving. Yeah. And that she's not just worth loving, but feeling pleasure. Right. Um, it gets pretty graphic. It does. It gets pretty graphic. And it, and it wasn't about, it was, it wasn't about necessarily them falling in love. It was it because they, she didn't think it was going to happen, but she did learn. She didn't deserve to be hit. She didn't deserve to be all these things that mm-hmm. sex is more than just pleasurable for one person. And so, yes, she's falling in love, but that's not what those scenes are really about. Yeah. And I think it's telling that she falls in love with the most boring man to ever live. <laughs> like everyone wants him, though. Yeah. Well, it's true. He's safe and she's not. Yeah. So it works. Yeah. There's a there's a balance to the equation. And like, there. I wish that we would have gotten something like that in the in the movie. I don't think we would have had enough time for it to make sense right um but i do feel like not vindication but i feel so happy for jillian that she found somebody that can love her and that she can accept that love that somebody that really treasures her yeah and i thought as we were reading as i'm reading it i thought it was going to be like he snaps out of it you know like so many men seem to snap out of it with her or something was going to happen she was going to sabotage it and it was not refreshing but it was nice to see that it really wasn't about that. It yeah. was about Jillian healing. Yeah. And him being part of that. Yeah. Um, so now we've talked a lot about what do people like about this movie? We like the female closeness. We like the kind of pushback on the idea that uh, the domestic space can't be a space of power of empowerment. We like the um, the the ways that it talks about male violence and, and solidarity among women. Mm-hmm. What don't people like about this movie? <laughs> now, I'm going to set aside a lot of the uh, criticisms about the quality of the movie in particular. So I'm not going to talk about plot inconsistencies. Man, I think if we just changed the music, there'd be so much help. Yeah, I think uh, we're not going to talk about the very soupy soundtrack. I will say Practical Magic, the theme goes hard. I love it. I'll never change it. I also love the music that plays when Sally's looking for the Death Watch Beetle. Oh, that's really Both good. Both of those parts, I think, are excellent. This movie has some choices. When, when she's running, I like this yeah. kiss playing. <laughs> Jesus, it's the most nineties thing with the, with the cutoff shorts. Oh God! Listen, though, she looks perfect. she looks great. But when you combine all that together, her running in those cutoff shorts with those big boots, that stupid butterfly shirt with this kiss playing is the most nineties thing I've ever seen in my life, and I can't help but love it. But it sucks also. <laughs> Um. Anyway, and also the tone. A lot of people don't like the tone whiplash in this movie between really? horror and comedy and romance. Oh, I like it. Listen, I'm I'm the mummy fan is here. <laughs> if you want to talk about tone whiplash and cramming genres together, I I could not in good conscience criticize uh Practical Magic for this when I love the mummy. Yeah. Um. So we're gonna set those complaints aside because they are not very interesting on a thematic level sure maybe they represent the not a lot of care was put into this movie um there was i guess this they redid the soundtrack at the last minute really? like they did it they had one soundtrack and then they like threw that out the door and had alan Silvestri do a new one interesting i don't know what's up with that we're not going to talk about that stuff 
Uh, we are going to talk about other things. Um, <laughs> we did touch a bit on the fact that the movie uses romantic relationships as a sort of reward for character growth, which is pretty boring, but not, in my opinion, especially problematic or anything. Yes, it's boring. I agree. It is so annoying when every woman's story is like, you have done your character growth. Here is your assigned man. Yeah. Um, it's boring. It is standard for love stories, though, which I would argue that this is in much the way that we talked about Good Omens, right? Mm -hmm. It's a love story in that it is a story about love. This one also just happens to contain romance more explicitly than Good Omens did. But when I say it's a love story, I don't just mean it's a story in which two people end up together. I mean, it's a story about love. Yeah, it's right? love between sisters, yep. generational love, yep. um, love for your family, yep. going back generations uh, and loving your children mm -hmm. and learning to love and loving the place you are, loving your magic. I mean, it's just all about it. Yeah. It's, and I think that it's just it's strong in that sense. Yes. But it's not a perfect story. And the movie was critically panned. It has a cult following, but when you read reviews of it, it's largely not considered to be quote unquote good. Now, if you listen to our last um, what we've been up to, you know, my opinions on a movie that is quote unquote good. <laughs> is it not enough to see two beautiful people? Huge. <laughs> um, that's not my original thought. You can listen to the last what we've been up to. Anyway, on my rewatch, I tried my best to be as critical as I could, and I completely fucking failed. Every nitpick <laughs> I brought up was answered by the film, and I still found it really fucking charming overall. Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't hate it. I tried. Like I, I cannot tell you. I was like, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be so mean to this movie while I'm watching it. And I got my husband in on it too. I'm like, okay, we're both gonna watch this movie. We're gonna find everything to hate about it. And like, we came up with a handful, but like, it was kind of like, well, they explained that. Well, you know, yeah, it's kind of goofy, but I also like it. Like, like the this kiss scene. Like, yeah, it's so silly. It's so silly to have the song literally narrate what's happening. <laughs> movie it's so silly but oh my god it's so 90s i can't hate it i can't it's so funny oh my god it's so charming um i also really enjoyed the book i think the book has an overall better reception than the movie but but the lyrical prose and the slow plot certainly aren't for everybody it's also a bit saccharine at times, but you know, fuck, I love that too. I really liked it. And I'm not someone who typically likes a lot of stuff like that. I just think that the character development is so good mm -hmm. and switching between the, the, um, the generation, the generations really kept it, um, interesting. And especially like seeing the, the similarities where it was another thing. Like I felt like there was magic in, in this like two sisters. Right. Um, and this, how it's even like one is a little bit more, we'll use pretty in a way that's not necessarily pretty, but like right. prettier and one is smart and like how these, they're falling into these same types yeah. of people, but it's not bad. Right. And so I thought it was really interesting the way that they talked about that. And I really, really enjoyed the book. Yeah. But I don't think disliking this movie in particular, I don't think disliking this movie is wrong. Of course, I don't. And I don't want to be right. Um, I think some of the dislike for its for its portrayal of women and feminism is totally warranted. We discussed second wave feminism and one aspect of post feminism earlier. And I think this is a good place to start discussing this movie as something sort of post feminist, sort of second wave and why that doesn't always work. So post feminism 
Post-feminism, as we'll be using it here, is the idea that feminism is no longer necessary because we have transcended the need for it. I realize to a lot of our audience, they're going to be like, well, that's bullshit. And you're right. It is bullshit. But it's not an uncommon belief, especially in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, You see this in the attitude that feminism is about bra burning and hating men. To me, it's a fundamental misunderstanding about what feminism is. Mm -hmm. But after the second wave, when a lot of rights had been secured, there was this sort of feeling that the old methods were unnecessary and we could shift focus to things like girl power, which were inoffensive and confidence boosting without being challenging. Mm -hmm. Right. You also see this. You also see something similar in the idea that we are post-racial, you know, like Mm -hmm. racism is over because everybody got rights. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) Like, of course, no. But at the same time, like, like these people like people who believe this don't really understand that like there are still societal issues even if you know legally it's not like legal to do a lot of things but we still do that i think we heard this a lot at least in our generation of of course we're in a post-racial world we have a black president exactly yeah <laughs> it's like oh well if we can elect a black man to the highest office in our country then how can we still be racist oh and then you find out that so many people who voted for him are now like QAnon people right there's a there's a lot of um yeah it's not it's not it's not we are not we are not it's not we are not um anyway (laughs) my hardcore band um but during this time you also had the growing third wave of feminism which began to push back on many aspects of second wave feminism such as the idea that women must have a career or they are somehow setting feminism back it was also the first wave to really embrace intersectionality the idea Boy, that's the wrong word. Uh, The idea coined by Kimberly Crenshaw that people exist at the intersections of multiple marginalizations, such as black women, queer men, trans women, and so on. Can you give like a rough date of this? This was in the 80s that Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term. And third wave feminism, I believe, started sort of blowing not blowing up, but like building in the 90s and into the 2010s. We are now fifth. some people say fourth, fourth, fourth wave feminism, which kind of builds on the idea of intersectionality in a broader way. Um, so third wave feminism, therefore, aimed to be more inclusive than previous generations of feminism. Um, so where does Practical Magic, both the book and the movie, fit into all this? Uh, this is a quote from Practical Magic, Sisters as Friends, Mirrors by Olivia London Webb who writes, this is a movie about women, strong women, sisters, two sisters who would go through hell for each other, raised by two sisters who already have. I love the sister. I love that the sisters could not be more different. The sisters seem to have one slutty one and one smart. There's also the ever present in chick movies, maiden, mother, and crone archetype. Either you are a slut, a mother, or an old aunt. These older aunts follow suit. Aunt Frances is slutty and Aunt Jet is smart. Then we have the heroines of our story. Jillian is slutty and Sally is smart. There is no shortage of stereotypical pandering. The trouble-causing redhead who is sleeping around gets into trouble with the wrong man, slut-shaming again. The redemption is, however, that her savior is her sister, the smart brunette. Ah. Um... I like both of these characters, right? I like Sally. I like Jillian, both in the book and in the movie. I like that the movie has multiple kinds of women, but London Webb is not wrong here when she points <laughs> to the fact that this is kind of a classic Madonna horror complex. It's true. Sally is the smart mother figure. Jillian is the slutty fuck up. And Jillian, notably, is the one who gets abused, who gets mm-hmm. possessed, who fucks up everybody's life. There is an unspoken implication that if Jillian was not such a slut, none of this would have happened, right? Mm-hmm. If Jillian wasn't such a slut, if she just acted like Sally, nobody would have ever abused her. 
Oof. We know that's not true logically, right? But the movie doesn't really do anything to disavow us of that notion. Sally, who is domestic, Sally, who is smart, marries a man and has two beautiful children and then her her husband dies. And that's very sad, but she's not being punished for. She has depression. Yeah. That's her punishment. Right. And And who wouldn't? Yeah. As compared to Jillian, who runs away who sleeps around and so she gets her body hurt and literally controlled by a man Mm -hmm. it's not saying that jimmy is right and it's not saying that jillian deserves it but there's a connection right if she hadn't slept around would she have gotten possessed I think that this still happens in the book, but I think because we have more time with Jillian in the book, it doesn't feel as like, mm. Yeah. Mm. We get more of Jillian, like, especially like when Jillian takes in Kylie, like, as like her her favorite. Right. Right. Almost like it's her own daughter. And you get to see something that isn't in the movie. Sally's jealousy. Oh, yeah. Sally's so <laughs> The scene where she comes in on her birthday uh-huh. and oh, my God, it was so it was so very good. The, She's the, so jealous. The book is so much better about sh- showing Sally having flaws. Yes. So I think it reads less as Sally is yes. the good one and Jillian is the bad well, one. Well, especially when you go to the daughters and they almost switch. Yeah. Or they do really switch. Yep. And and even that switch is magical because yep. suddenly like it's almost like uh what's her name? Anastasia? Antonia. Antonia. Like it's almost like her light dims. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that was so interesting and such a good thing. Like this magic feels hereditary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Obviously, Jillian is part of Sally's growth. It's not just about punishing Jillian. And Sally's, like, frigidity isn't good either, right? Like, it's not that, you know, not having sex makes you bad. It's not that that is bad. It's more the fact that Sally has closed herself off to something that she actually does want on some level because she's afraid of what will happen. That's not good, right? Mm -hmm. And Jillian is part of her healing from that process. Um. Or Jillian is part of the healing process from that. But there's almost this return to, to traditional femininity, like pre-second wave, in how mm-hmm. the sisters are constructed. Um, this is a quote, again, from The Woman Sawed in Half, Death, Duality, and the Female Figure of Postmodern Psychodrama by Caitlin Hanger, who writes, Although Sally rescues Jillian from her abusive boyfriend and tries to help her free herself from his ghost, it is Jillian who plays a matchmaking role in helping Sally see that Aiden Quinn is the male object she truly desires. Brief aside here from me, Melissa, I think it's so fucking funny that the author only uses Aiden Quinn to refer to... That is the actor's name. Oh my Every gosh. Every other person is referred to... I was I'm like, who's Aiden? Aiden? Aiden is the person who plays... Gary Hallett in the movie. Oh. God, he does a great job. I should hate that man. But the the part when when she sees that he has one green eye and one blue, and she gets up and goes, and he's like, I was born this way. I was born this fucking funny. Anyway, back to the quote. Um in writing about sister films of the, sister films of the 1940s, Basinger comments, "What all these films that deal with two women, either as twins, sisters, rivals, or the divided self, are about is quite simply a woman's desire to be something else. Their popularity had to be partly due to their depicting a woman cutting loose and doing the opposite of what was expected of her." Unquote. Practical magic continues in this tradition, allowing us to enjoy the worldly antics of Jillian, accompanied by a sexy musical soundtrack when she appears on screen, and the domestic powers of pleasures of Sally's homey life, but the story strongly privileges the lifestyle of Sally in the end. 
So but Sally still does have to move away to, in the book to get yes, that. Yes, exactly. Uh, there is an implication that Jillian ought to find a guy and settle down, right? She in, does. In the book. In the book. In the movie, no. Um, I'm glad the movie doesn't end that way. Yeah. Uh, though I did like who she ended up with in the book. I really like Ben in the book. I know. And I really, I I think, I I understand why it wasn't in the movie, but I still just like Jillian. I love I you. know. Jillian you deserve, <laughs> you deserve to know you, you deserve to be loved. Yeah. Um, but I feel like there's a suggestion that that's what the right thing to do is, especially now that the curse is broken. This isn't quite a pushback on second wave feminism. It's not pretending that feminism isn't necessary, but it's also not quite third wave, right? Mm-mm. It It's, of course, possible for something to not belong to any wave of feminism or indeed to be anti-feminist. But I don't think that's necessarily what's happening in Practical Magic. It's more like the movie wanted to have its cake and eat it, too. It wanted a sexually liberated protagonist but not too much, right? <laughs> if you're, you can't be too sexually liberated. Um, it wanted a businesswoman, but not at the expense of her family because then she'd be a bad mother, right? Yeah. It wanted a romantic ending, which is fine. But as Hanger says, the privileging of Sally's conclusion over Jillian, Jillian's, well, she didn't use the word bummer, but I'm going to use the word <laughs> bummer. It's a bummer, right? Yeah. Jillian gets to have it all. All we know, or sorry, Sally gets to have it all. All we know of Jillian's ending is that she seems to have uh, taken over Sally's space as the two frigid, as the frigid old woman <laughs> with her two frigid hag ants. Whatever she says, I don't remember. Anyway, I've thrown myself wildly off track. Basically, Jillian ends up almost in the space that she tries to assign to Sally. Yeah, and and Jillian doesn't get a conclusion other than to be free of the man. Maybe you know, maybe that's enough, right? But the movie is so clear that, like, Sally is the good one. Yeah. That to just have Jillian no longer be tormented just feels like, well, and that's all you get. It feels like the Jillian story is not done. Like, she's she can now heal, right? And her healing is beginning. While in the book, her healing is a constant thing. Yeah. Um, And being together is part of the healing. Uh, Whereas in the movie, it just feels like... And now she can heal from this and Sally's ready. That's I think the thing that gets me is that it's it's Sally's story and Jillian is a pawn in Sally's yeah. story, which is not great when she's the abuse victim. Yeah. You know, it really does make it feel it makes the abuse feel like punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not great. Like, I don't feel great about that narrative. Yeah. Um, this is a quote from The Woman Sought in Half, Death, Duality, and the Female Figure of Postmodern Psychodrama by Caitlin Hanger. Um, however, suffice it to say that, unlike Hoffman's novel, the film emphasizes Sally and Jillian's relationships with men as strongly as the relationships between the generation of women. Director Griffin Dunn seems to have enlarged the role of Jillian's boyfriend in order to fit more screen time into the story for Nicole Kidman. Mm-hmm. How, unfortunately, as one reviewer wrote, this leaves Kidman, Kidman quote-unquote, stu- or sorry, quote, stuck in a one-note rut and in the end, little more than a vessel for exorcist effects, unquote. Nevertheless, Practical Magic, although not necessarily a psychodrama, circles around a number of important issues regarding motherhood and parenting. The film ends with a typical Hollywood happy ending, heterosexual love and domesticity, for Sally, the primary protagonist. Paradoxically, it is an ending that retains a certain amount of matriarchal agency for Sally, however, in that Aiden Quinn, love of her life... I'm sorry, it's so funny to me every time. Uh, Appears to be exactly the man she conjured up in a spell as a young girl. In this way, Sally seems to paradoxically control and yet not control her own destiny. Um, I think this is why the ending does manage to land for me, at least in terms of Sally. Mm -hmm. In the end, Gary is the man that Sally conjured, right? 
she does still have some degree of yeah. agency and that she said, I will never fall in love with a man unless he is that this exact man. Lo and behold, that exact man shows up. Right. And he doesn't care if she summoned him. Yeah, he's just like, well, he's just whatever. like, you know, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't really believe in magic right. until suddenly he can't. Yeah. <laughs> he must. Even then, I think he's still like, well, maybe they slipped me something. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it is like weird that her aunts put a spell on her and didn't take it off so she can't trust love. Like, it, it's, it's not like it ruins it for me. It's just kind of like, why you do that? And like, how consensual is Gary's love for her? You know? We'll never know. We'll truly never know. Um, it was so sad, though. Hmm. When she's tearing up that beetle. Oh, yeah. Um, well, and I mean, with Gary, too. Like, she cre- she essentially created his his love for her, right? With, but with the spell. Yeah. Does So, like, is it consensual? Does he, does he choose? <laughs> or... Do you choose who you love, though? Um, I think I choose who I love more than if I cast a spell and <laughs> like made that person exist. But love is magic. It is, but I also <laughs> allow the other person autonomy. You know, but why when it's a man? <laughs> feminism. <laughs> That's feminism. That's feminism, baby. <laughs> um, I would have liked to see Sally fall in love of her own accord, not because of magic, uh, because I feel pretty strongly that one of the most important themes of the book is that love is magic. So to say that love is magic, okay, 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 but also <laughs> magic is magic. So, you know, um, the thing, the thing is, again, the theme of the book to me is that love is magic. They are inextricable. So the film, again, doesn't manage to convey the idea of practical magic because there is too much literal magic but i do have to say full disclosure the spell kicks ass it's true i love that part and when it when you see it like coming down on him as a boy riding oh. backwards on the on the on the horse so, so good uh, i have really complicated feelings about this movie because again i struggle with the idea that like is this relationship consensual for gary if he has literally been summoned into you know being? what you gotta support women's wrongs support women's wrongs <laughs> Um, he's happy she's hot <laughs> who among us would not be happy to be in a relationship with Sandra I mean like how's, he's not gonna do better look I know he's supposed to be cute but it's not I'm not into it um, so I don't think he's, he's not gonna get better he's not like Matt hot or anything but his character is real cute aside yeah. from the fact that he's a cop <laughs> well a cab, baby. Oh my god! It's yeah. I just I have complicated feelings about this movie, right? It does some things I think that are so great. Like I wish I wish she had just gotten rid of the spell, you know? <laughs> just like ah, oh, fuck that. I could get rid of it. It's I mean, gone. it, it could have worked in that when she finds out that her aunts put a spell on it and be like, well, fuck, I gotta take that other spell off. Yeah, there. I think there were ways to make this work that it just didn't. It just it was just kind of like don't think too much about it, especially like. I mean, it could have been easy, like in the book specifically, when they find out like um, Jillian didn't kill him. Right. <laughs> like something clearly yeah, else happened. Something we haven't discussed at all. <laughs> Jillian <laughs> did not kill him, and neither did Sally. No, he died from it on his own accord. Yeah. But it could have been easy as that spell you cast. That's not how you do it. Yeah. You're dumb. Yeah. But they didn't. Yeah. But you know what? I'm cool with it. I think he's it's, a cop. It's so it's so good, and also I think you could do better. 
know? Um, this is a quote from Glamorous Witchcraft, Gender and Magic in Teen Film and Television by Rachel Mosley, who writes, uh, Jilly is the problematic witch in this film. She is sexualized. Quote, Jillian has her own magic and we all know what it is, <laughs> says her aunt. Uh, independent and unconventional. Unlike Sally, she does not marry or have children. She becomes possessed by the spirit of her evil lover, whom the sisters have killed and brought back to life. And significantly, the signs of this female magical power gone wrong suggest nature out of control, symbolized by a rampant rose bush growing over Jimmy's grave in the garden and a bottle of tequila called Diablo del Flores. The women form a magic circle to exercise the spirit crossing I did groups. not catch that. The, Diablo de Flores. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, the women form a magic circle to exercise the spirit crossing brooms. While on one hand, this is a consciousness raising exercise constructed as a girly night in and a way of dealing with bad relationships. On the other, bringing Jilly back into line, ridding her of the excessive sexuality which possesses her is aligned with a reordering of the domestic space. Come on, ladies, let's clean house. Jilly's yeah. mode of glamour, her non-reproductive sexuality and her magic are deemed neither acceptable nor respectable. Whereas in the book, she's she's finally got the good guy, and they're fucking all the time. They're fucking all the time, all the time. And, he's got, and he has a rabbit, and they're not married, and they're not married. So feel that's why I feel like the book does it just so. I mean, obviously, it has a lot more time to do it, but sure. like it, it definitely feels better because it's not demonizing sex. Yeah, it's it's not. Um, mostly isn't wrong here. Jillian is a problematic woman whose quote unquote unladylike behaviors have caused issues for her family. And it's the power of domesticity that heals her. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I've also praised the power of domestic work in this story. And I stand by that, but it does feel a bit like bringing Jillie to heal. Now I use the wrong form of heal in the outline. (laughs) Good grief. It does feel a bit like bringing Jillie to heal rather than empowering her. I love that she's supported into healing by a community. I love that. I love the idea that the entire community said it is wrong for this woman to be harmed and abused. So we're all going to come together and we're all going to support her and we're all going to get her out from under the thumb of this abusive man. That's community care. I love it. Yeah. Right. Then they should have brought him a man to have sex with. So even it out. (laughs) We've brought you a man. I, I love that she is supported by by this community into healing but I also feel conflicted about how she's contrasted with Sally who is naturally good at witchcraft domesticity and good at being good Sally does does not struggle with being good it just seems to come naturally to her and it's something that she also like feels she has to be right like she has to be she won't let herself be anything else yeah in the book because you see more of Sally's internal life you see this as a problem too like you can see that she is compensating for something. She she's doing this out of a sense of duty, and like her aunts are taking advantage of it, yes. right? Like that she's cooking for. She's a child. Yeah, her aunts aren't that great in the no, book. They're not. Um, I mean, it also isn't that great in the movie when they're like, "Oh, you fucked up someone's life." Yeah. Bye. <laughs> Clean up your own mess. We'll leave the kids here too. Yeah, that was the thing that really got me. Why did they leave the kids? They gave them like magic roots and this. Like, it was rope. It was oh. Maria's. It was Maria's rope. But then they stop wearing the rope, and that's why people complain about inconsistencies. <laughs> I mean, they only wear the rope in one scene. There's some, like, whack choices in how this movie was made. Um, So, like, again, Sally is good at being good. It comes easy to her, whereas Jillian is punished for being bad, right? She's narratively punished. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know. It's complicated. (laughs) I like this movie, and I like the book as well, and I think there are lots of reasons why people like this movie, but there are also lots of fair (laughs) reasons to not like it that have nothing to do with it being like a chick flick or a rom-com, because I think that's the instinct that people have, is that they hear, oh, you don't like this movie, you must hate women. It's like, no. (laughs) 
uh, if you like, if you look at the the feminist politics of this movie, for example, mm-hmm. there's some regressive. There's some great stuff. There's also some super regressive yeah. stuff in there. Like there are, there are legitimate reasons to not like this movie that are not coming from a place of misogyny, right? Missy just doesn't give a shit about this. Yeah, I don't care about those reasons. She's like, I, fuck off. I like bad shit all the time. Like, we know this. Sucker punch. Yeah. The most feminist film. Fe- absolutely. <laughs> a feminist masterpiece. Feminist masterpiece, sucker punch. We were actually having a great conversation in our Discord about yeah. the idea of feminist masterpiece. It was a good conversation. Yeah. Um, Shout out to the Discord. Yeah. Uh, and then go listen to our Jennifer's Body episode. Yeah. It's a great time to do so. Yeah. Um, uh, unless you're like super diehard and don't want to hear anything bad about it. Yeah, but don't do it's it. It's me, the Jennifer's Body. Oh, no, I actually love Jennifer's Body. I think it's such a fun movie. I just don't think it's a feminist masterpiece. I'm the just one. Just like Practical Magic. I fucking yeah. love this movie. I love it to pieces. It is not a feminist masterpiece. No. Um, I find this movie extremely charming, but not all cr- criticism of it boils down to coming from a place of misogyny, which I think is kind of what people want to think mm-hmm. when they hear, oh, you don't like practical magic. It must be misogyny. I think because there's been so much vitriol towards chick flicks yeah. um, that it just feels like uh, like a knee jerk reaction of like, mm-hmm. well, you haven't even really given it a chance, have you? And when you look at some of the early reviews of this movie, because this movie has a terrible, terrible critical reception, right? When you look at the reception, there's misogyny in it, mm-hmm. right? But like, I, and the same is true of Jennifer's body. I think Jennifer's body is actually a really apt comparison um, because both are movies that are informed by feminism, yeah. right? They're movies about women. They're movies that had poor critical reception. And some of that critical reception, some of that poor critical reception is because they are movies about women, right? Yeah. Um, or chick flicks, if you mm-hmm. want to call them that. I don't. I think it's a little harder to justify that Jennifer's body is a chick flick. This is a chick. Practical Magic is, yes. is a chick flick. I think the idea of chick flick was going away around that uh, yeah, time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, like, it's not that misogyny is not a factor. It's only that there are reasons to like this movie, to not like this movie, that are not misogyny. I think both also may um, suffer from directors who don't care in the right ways. Sure. Because I know with Jennifer's body, what's her name was kind of like, well, whatever. Karen Kusama. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what's her name? Who Diablo did you know? Cody. Yeah, Diablo. I think Diablo Cody. I think I remember saying something about like she was like she wasn't like she just kind of was like whatever. We'll just do this. Yeah, she wasn't trying to make Juno again or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think maybe with this, um, maybe the director and writer were like, well, yeah. whatever. <laughs> they don't need to keep the rope on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whatever. The townspeople. His eyes don't need to be. One green eye, one blue in every scene. In every scene. <laughs> Only when we're talking about I, it. I literally was looking. I was like, okay, I, I didn't notice it before. And I was like, um. <laughs> we're only going to have him do that when it's necessary. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah. So the my point is that, like, we can see why people might like this movie, right? I think that even critics of this movie can probably find a reason why people would like it. Um, and I think that as fans of this movie, it's worthwhile for us to look at it and go, hey, why don't people, why don't people like this movie? Yeah. And I'm not allowed to say misogyny because there are other reasons. I find this a productive exercise. Um, I <laughs> of think course it, you do. I think at one time this movie was probably unlike a lot of things out there because of the way it straddles the lines and the time period between waves of feminism. Like, I think that that's true. Right. 1998 was a different time. Um, I also think it's worthwhile to interrogate what it is that we like about it. I like it unquestioningly. Like I said, I tried to we watch we watch it. We watch it. I tried to we watch. 
I tried to, You're tired. I'm so tired, you guys. I tried to rewatch it as critically as I could, and I totally failed. I could not do it. So um, I would like to bring up the Rotten Tomatoes. Just oh, so, so bad. Says. It's um, from the reviewers, it's a 23%. Yeah. And from the audience score, it's a 73. Yeah. And if you're not super familiar with Rotten Tomatoes, that represents the number of critics who liked something. So 23% of critics gave it a positive score. And the remaining 77% gave it a negative score. Um, so like opposite. The inverse for, for yeah. viewers. And of course, we can chalk some of that up to misogyny, right? We can say like, oh, a lot of the critics who watched it in 1998 yeah. were misogynist. There was a lot of men in film criticism. Yeah. There was a lot of um, backlash to feminism. There was like, like sure, misogyny was not, not a factor. But... Is it a good movie? <laughs> is it a good movie? I mean, what is a good movie, right? What is a good movie? What is a good movie? Is, is it, it a movie? A, is it not enough to see two beautiful people huge? I mean, does it like feel like a movie? Do you feel held by it? It's like, you know, a movie. <laughs> not to invoke Harry Styles. We should um, always be invoking Harry Styles so we don't have to think about anything. It's true. Um, I wish my mind was as clear. As it's feminism. I wish my mind was as blank as Harry Styles. <laughs> imagine, imagine living life like that and being rich. Could you imagine living the dream and like being? He's exclusively dressed by like Gucci. You don't even have to think about what you're wearing. I know he's just coasting by. He is coasting. He's a marshmallow peep of a man. <laughs> he looks like one, but he's like the best peep. He has the nutritional value of one, but you like it. I do. Actually, I don't like. Just don't put him. Just don't so put him in a microwave. Don't put Harry Styles in a microwave. <laughs> That's the moral of this episode. <laughs> We're so off track. What are we even talking about? Um, this is what happens when we record later in the day. Yeah. I. So yeah, I tried to rewatch it as quickly as I could, and it totally failed. And I think if you put the book and the movie together, you have a much stronger story because they seem to balance out one another's flaws. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 2022 now. It's it is the year twenty twenty two. It may not feel that way. It may not feel that way, but it's true. You may not like it, but that's a fact. Uh, I think there are better examples of things that are not that are about sisterhood or magic or relationships today than there were in nineteen ninety eight. Like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. I'm just kidding. I mean, the go to movie about sisterhood, right? Frozen. Frozen. Yeah, right? that's true. Like obviously, Frozen and Practical Magic are not the same. They're not are, for the same audience. You never know. <laughs> but like. There are better and other examples of this that are more inclusive. Frozen's not super inclusive. <laughs> I would say Frozen is not inclusive at all. At all. Unless, Unless you're, you're a snowman or, or a snow. reindeer. And ro- the rock people. The trolls? Yeah, they're rocks. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so if you're a rock person. They're rocking and rolling. The, if you're a rock person, a reindeer, or a snowman, you get the representation. And I think in the crazy. second one, I don't know, some like fairies. Okay. Anyway, this is not about Frozen. Um, There are better examples of this kind of thing, I think, today. Uh, But I don't think there's anything wrong with having a soft spot for this movie or the book, even if I also think it's worthwhile to interrogate our own interest in it now and then. But to be fair, Missy always thinks you should do that. Literally, I think it's fun. (laughs) Obviously, I'd hope so. Yeah. (laughs) I'd hope so. Uh, My therapist is gently encouraging me to think less. My therapist is like, emulate Harry Styles. He did not say that, but imagine if he did. Um, <laughs> Next time you're thinking too hard, say, what would Harry Styles I'm going to get you a bracelet. This is WWHSD. And everybody's going to think it's because I'm really into Harry Styles, yeah. but it's because I need to think less. Yeah. <laughs> and then the inside will be engraved with think less. 
<laughs> anyway. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, the gist here is that why do people like this movie? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Why do people not like this movie? Well, there's a lot of reasons. All valid. Yeah. It, unless you're misogynist. Unless you're, yeah, we're just going to count the misogynists out. As we try to. They don't keep, we, they, they don't have matter. No, they have no value here. Um, Put them in the ground. Yeah. Like Jimmy. Like Jimmy. Exactly. And then they'll grow into roses and make a mess. And then we cut them down. And then we cut them down. And then we have to get all the townspeople to come over and cast a spell with us. That's how you get rid of misogynists. This is why we don't live in a post feminist world. Yeah. Because, because we, we still yet. have to do this ritual. It's yeah. so annoying. It's so frustrating. We just can't get everybody involved. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to get everybody to come over and cast a spell oh with you. Oh my God. We're idiots. Uh, anyway. Why do people listen to us? I don't know. That's why. This is why. <laughs> They're like, oh, I didn't expect them to talk about here. Harry Styles' empty brain in this episode. <laughs> you know what? There's a magic to empty brains. There's a magic to Harry Styles. There, is, they're really, truly, like almost to the point of like, did he? Did he? Is, no. is that what Taylor Swift does? No, Harry Styles is not a wizard. He oh. is the product of a wizard who uh-huh. said, "I want the hot man with no brain." And Taylor Swift said, here we go. Yeah. And she brought, because before that, like. He, Taylor Swift might be the wizard. She Well, she took Brendan Urie's magic. That's true. So, you know. The deep thoughts here yeah. on Fake Geek Girls. Um, Practical magic. It's good. It's bad. It's. This love is good. That's magic, baby. bad. Um, do you have anything else to say about Practical Magic? No, I really like the book. Uh, if you like the movie, you should read the book because it's really good. If you found the conversation about witchcraft and capitalism interesting, play the game of Bewitching Revolution. Mm-hmm. It's also based on the philosophy of mm-hmm. Silvia Federici. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can stomach a YouTube video essay, <laughs> I highly recommend the one by Philosophy Tube. <laughs> it's really, really good. I keep coming back to it and I finally concluded, Missy, you just need to read Silvia Federici. <laughs> Instead of watching this video three times, <laughs> why don't you just fucking read the book? Um, and that is because it's easy to watch a YouTube video. <laughs> uh, that's it for this episode. You can find us online at fakeeatgirlscast.com, which has all of our previous episodes, some ones you might want to listen to after, you know, to inform this conversation. Jennifer's body if episode um a long time ago oh the witch episode uh, a long long time ago we did an episode just on witches yeah um and that one had some things in it too that might be interesting i was going to re-listen to it, it was, before i did this but i didn't time. it was pro- so long ago you probably would be upset because it doesn't sound as good no it actually sounded pretty oh, good. good i was like i was like you know what this doesn't sound like shit hell yeah um i think this was back in our rubber made container days yeah um, we've, we've come so far we truly have um you can also on our website find uh transcripts or some of of some of our past episodes and it's an ongoing project thank you to emily june for continuing to help me transcribe these episodes it's a big help doing god's work doing god's work god is a transcriptionist um they you know god is a woman god is a woman god is a transcriptionist what if god was one of us a transcriptionist. a transcriptionist um (laughs) if you like this you can also find check out our patreon (laughs) patreon.com slash fake geek girls where for a small donation per episode you can get cool rewards i'm so sorry to everybody who's waiting on a postcard uh, I have morphed slowly into Harry Styles and I no longer have a brain. Um, <laughs> That's because therapy told you to. Yeah, it's because my therapist told me to. That's not true. Um, they will happen. They will come. I'm, I promise you. Um, 
<laughs> Next time. <laughs> if you pay, it shall come. Yeah. Next time we're going to talk about Daria. I'm excited about this. I am too. I'm in t- I am too. I've read one essay that was really good. I have not yet found an entire dissertation just on Six Sad Worlds. And I'm waiting. Oh, I know. I'm going to go back to college so I can write a dissertation on Six Sad Worlds. I really like it except for the extremely fat phobic one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was rough. And that, well, that's one of the essays I read talked about that. Mm-hmm. And it talked about the fact that like, Yes, Daria is kind of a groundbreaking feminist character, but at the same time, and this is called out in the show, I don't know how far you it how far you are in. It's called out in the show that she has biases of her own mm-hmm. that impact her feminism. It's called out specifically by Jody. Um I'm halfway through season two, I think. You're probably just about there. Have you gotten to the episode where she gets like recruited to go to the gifted school? Oh, I just finished that. That's, yes. That's where yes, she talks yes, about it. Yes, yes, um, And the essay brings up the I fact. I love her. Jody. Oh, yeah. Jody's great. The only normal person. Truly. <laughs> um, after Daria, we're going to be talking about Russian Doll. I this am is so excited. So fucking excited. I love Russian Doll. I'm being Nadia for Halloween. How, are there two seasons? There are two seasons. How yes. long are they? They are like 10 episodes and they're a half hour each. Oh, wow. Nice. Truly blessed. Um, and that's it. Cool. Catch you on the flip side. <laughs>